0: I'm Grant Haver. I'm Zoe Weinberg. And this is Next in Foreign Policy, the podcast where the next generation of national security and foreign policy leaders talk about the issues of today and tomorrow. This week, we're joined by Shirley Hargis, a consultant working at the intersection of China, Taiwan, and technology. She's also a senior fellow at the Taiwan Next Gen Foundation and executive director of Black Professionals and International Affairs. Shirley, thanks for joining us. Thank you
1: both. It's a pleasure to be here. Shirley, what uh, originally attracted you to foreign
2: policy? I get that question a lot, especially with being in the China and Taiwan space. I'm first generation American born and raised by Ghanaian immigrants in Centerville, Virginia. Much like many other children of immigrants, my options were to become a doctor, engineer, lawyer or disappointment. (laughs) With those kinds of restrictions, you develop never ending curiosity course, with maturity, I've now got that under control, but I'm always thinking about how pieces fit situations, fit people. That's just how my brain works. So over a decade ago, one day I was sitting in East Asia and world affairs. That, That was the name of the course and beyond Japanese manga and anime and Bruce Lee and those Chinese characters that look hard. That's what I, how I would look at them at the time. I knew nothing about East Asia. My former professor knew that I was Ghanaian, so she lent me this book called China in Africa by Chris Alden, and I'll never forget that book. After my very first project, I was comparing four South Korean administrations against four U.S. administrations and their approach to the Sunshine Policy and other China projects that I was doing. At the end of the semester, I think, or mid-semester, she came up to me and she said that I I should learn Mandarin. And of course, that's one of the last things (laughs) anyone expects to hear. (laughs) But she said that there aren't many black women providing insights in the China field from the U S. And so because I love the, again, just putting pieces together, the strategy, the, the, the chess, the chess movement, I was on a mission to obtain these linguistic and cultural competencies. So my first trip to East Asia was Taiwan for the summer. You know, I got in a lot of practice because everyone wanted to speak to the black person, you know, <laughs> so I got in a lot of practice. It was great. So foreign policy is perfect for me. You know, I grew up in a culture first and humility led household. So one thing that is often missed in my opinion from foreign policy is the ability to set the race first mindset aside in the U.S. and look at culture first to understand these leaders. Just because a leader looks like me doesn't mean I should say, oh, he thinks like I do. It's like, no, you you have to think about the cultural background backdrop here. And so I grew up on languages that require very strong tonal command. Having a natural ability to pay mind to tones to helped me with my speaking with Mandarin. You know, I said the requirement was to be a doctor, lawyer, engineer, disappointment. So, <laughs> so my mindset growing up was I'll, I'll fulfill my commitments, the violin, the track, et cetera, so I can draw. So I, I sketched portraits. I was so, you know, I was Really sharp eye to detail that I apply in foreign policy, that I apply when I'm just doodling. And I was able to transfer that ability into writing simplified and traditional characters. So folks are like, how can you read those characters? Because of that eye for detail that I've built over so many years, it, that helps me. So in a way, I I still continue to feed that love for art and creativity in the foreign policy space, especially when you're thinking strategically about how to move forward relations improve, et cetera. So I went to Taiwan, China, back again another time. And I wanted to learn to read, write and speak about these global interests that I developed from this class in Chinese. And so I made it my mission to do so. So I, I like the China field. You know, as you can see, not a doctor, lawyer, engineer (laughs) decided on the China field. And I appreciate it because I selected it. It really allows me to use my strategic thinking. So it's, 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 it's never a dull moment.
1: So you said, you know, that your, your professor mentioned that there weren't a lot of Black women professionals in the China field. I'd love to hear more about how bringing a different, you know, set of identities and set of perspectives to the table has informed the way that you think about China policy or informed the way that you are able to communicate different views and things like that. Like, like how do do you think that that has shaped your shaped your experience as a, as a member of the foreign policy community?
2: When I think about cross-strait relations, for example, and I want to, I I want to be very mindful when I say this, of course, when I think about the challenges between China and Taiwan and folks saying, when China saying you belong to us and that sort of rhetoric, because and this is a very light parallel, very light. I can understand why a people feel that you belong to them because of cultural ties, historical ties, that culture first mindset that I'm able to turn on and off. I can understand it. Does it mean that I agree with it? No, but I understand it and so there are many ways that I'm able to apply that mindset, whether it's prostrate u s china relations, china Africa relations I find. Just that, this that ability to just always trying to fit and see where the parallels are, but also being mindful to the history behind geopolitical relations has been very advantageous for me.
0: Let's dig in a little bit more to the cross-strait relations piece. You know, the this, this week tensions are continuing to flare in Ukraine, and there's a lot of conversation about. How China is viewing this situation vis a vis their situation with Taiwan. What do you think about that?
2: I think we must be cognizant of drawing direct parallels between Ukraine and Taiwan. I will say this though, under Chairman Xi, the the PRC wants to elevate its global position. If Xi observes the U S decide to take specific actions regarding Ukraine that wouldn't be considered quote support in whoever's eyes, then they'll make a note of that. China's leadership will consider the possibility that the U.S. is prioritizing its domestic agenda, aka recovering from the economic aftershocks of the pandemic, for example, over covering its allies. I'll use Afghanistan as an example. No matter your prescriptions of whether the pullout was right or wrong, the perception is what matters, just as it does anywhere, especially when other folks can manipulate the perception to their benefit. In this case, to others, it can look like, hmm, they abandoned them after 20 years.
0: Yeah, I think that's really important to not just map directly from one conflict to another. I know you work primarily at the the intersection of tech and and East Asia. I know one of the big conversations we had, at least at the beginning of the pandemic, was the supply chain issue, especially around semiconductors. Where do you think our supply chains sit as of right now coming out of East Asia and how The pandemic has impacted those.
2: The economic aftershocks of the pandemic have underscored the importance of supply chain resiliency and that relying on sole sources in critical supply chains can backfire. Over 90% of semiconductor manufacturing comes from Taiwan. As a result, America, China, and many other governments are investing in becoming self reliant. China is heavily pursuing localizing semiconductor value chains. That being said, the challenge that China faces doesn't have, they don't have the kind of talent needed to execute the IC fabrication process, a very fragile approach, which is vital to the development of chips. Taiwan does though. So China, including pressuring U.S. companies to go against the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act and lure foreign companies and in with incentives to transfer their operations to China they're trying to strategically place themselves in such a way that is beneficial to them this example will help underscore the strategic importance of taiwan the taiwan strait is a very strategic and vital trade route so much so that conflict in the indo pacific that means coming with global implications that will touch many democracies and so I think that yes, China's unlikely to change rhetoric surrounding wanting to eventually bring Taiwan as they say back under Chinese control. But Taiwan is I would say Taiwan is in a good place in terms of the US needs us and China needs us. If China were to become
1: increasingly hostile vis-a-vis Taiwan, how do you think that would play out? Like are we likely to see actual sort of like kinetic engagement or is it more likely to look like increasing economic pressure on Taiwan, diplomatic pressure. How will we know if China
2: is ratcheting up the pressure on Taiwan? I'll use the example of the U.S. pulling out of Afghanistan again. China used this opportunity to fuel the fire to, fe- to fear in Taiwan that America would not support them should Beijing decide to invade them militarily. Chinese leadership. Employed something called the three warfares one, public opinion warfare, two, legal warfare, and three, psychological warfare. In this case, likely a mix of public opinion warfare and psychological warfare. One could argue that Taiwan has already been under attack because of these three warfares, the gray zone aspect of this. It's used to create doubt, and China's always doing that when it comes to Taiwan. So when I think of what an attack would look like, I think that it is so vital that we focus heavily on how the PRC employs the three warfares.
0: Last week marked the end of the Olympics in China. In the run-up to the Olympics, there was all this talk about the diplomatic boycotts. I was very, very strongly in favor of doing a little bit more than diplomatically boycotting. But what do you think the impact was on China of hosting the Olympics and the impact of the diplomatic boycotts and and how it all came out?
2: Well, it was interesting. As many other global issues have emphasized, the games, you know, we kinda had this it's them or us route with many of these countries. China's leadership made sure to use it the Olympics to showcase that they are receiving global support. According to reports, there were 12 diplomatic boycotts, about 32 heads of state attended the Olympics, and many statements were written by many other leaders who could not physically come. During a time of China's resurgence where many thought Beijing was soiling its reputation and looking like a security risk for others, that is a big deal. So at the Olympics, the Middle East, for one, and from a political security and economic standpoint, Read the Middle East. In January, foreign ministers in the Middle East were in China talking about moving forward with a free trade agreement. And I'll never forget those years ago when China wouldn't go near certain regions because they didn't want to be entangled and carry any responsibility for supporting anyone's terrorism issues. China's the world's top importer of crude, which some of that comes from the Middle East, and they're their top trading partners. So I found that to be very interesting that many uh, leaders from the Middle East were at the Olympics.
1: What was Beijing's perception of how how this year's Olympics went?
2: On the way up to the 20th National Party Congress, especially Beijing showcasing all of these leaders from regions coming over to their Olympics, despite the diplomatic boycotts. I think Beijing thinks that this is a good position to be in on the way up to the 20th National Party Congress. The 20th National Party Congress is supremely important, very important to especially the country, yes, but important to Xi Jinping because this is an opportunity for him to try to realize this unprecedented third term that he's wanted. And his focus is to make sure everything, especially domestic politics, everything's going perfect so that the path to him realizing this third term is smooth for him.
0: Do you think the third term is a sign of success For Xi Jinping, or do you think it's a sign of weakness for China that ultimately it's going to become dominated by a single person rather than the the party system?
2: Hmm, that's a very good question. It's a success for Xi Jinping.
0: So another area of tech that China has been trying to be a leader in is 5G. There's been a huge amount of pushback from the U.S., And, you know, we've brought along some of our European counterparts and even India has had some pushback. What do you think about the future of telecoms, you know, 5G, 6G as it relates to China and this geopolitical fight?
2: Can you imagine stuttering latency during a military attack? I need us to be more consistent. And create a resilient approach compared to the rocky 5G rollout that we've had, and certainly want to avoid the magnitude of security related challenges that come from that. A national strategy would be vital because anything less than than a prudent approach to 6G would be incredibly troubling, economically and in regards to national security. Communications networks are a part of our everyday lives. Anyone in control of this critical infrastructure? And that's how we should be looking at this critical infrastructure. If you're in control of the critical infrastructure, you have control of the rest of the century because we're talking about communications networks, including military operations, our day to day operations, our engagements with other countries. And we have to be first with this because China is very attractive to many because their tech prices are low. So other countries will need to understand the concerns that may come from having China tech use in their communications networks.
1: You mentioned at the beginning, your interest in China in part came from a book about China's involvement on the continent of Africa. And when you talk now about critical technology infrastructure, I have, I, of course, I'm thinking about elements of the BRI in in Africa. Would love to hear a little bit more about your, your perspective on China's role in the region.
2: This is a topic that I've discussed so many times around my family's dinner table growing up. Some parts of my family think that in 2040, the whole continent is going to be an extra China hub, basically. Some other parts of my family members are concerned about the strategic use of loans by China. Yet they also have concerns with the history of IMF with the continent as well. So when I look at China-Africa relations, there has to be a way that this is much more mutually beneficial. As things stand now, I don't think they are. I really appreciate that some leaders are saying We're not going to accept the loans. We need to revisit what this relationship looks like. And I'm pleased to hear that. Is it too late? I'm not pleased by the current status of the situation. I'll say that. But I'm always thinking of how my uncle said that in 2040, he thinks that entire continent is going to be a China tech hub.
1: And do you think people like your uncle say that with a certain degree of anxiety? Or is it more excitement or the way at least that you're saying it sounds like there's a sense that this is somewhat inevitable, but curious whether people perceive that as inevitable in a kind of good, this is progress way or, or, or less so.
2: I don't think they see it as progress. I think there, there's a lot of anxiety behind these comments, unless there is a way for the relationship to be more mutually beneficial. It's a concern for a lot of folks, because what does that mean for Africans on the continent? What does that mean for them? I would say my family is very concerned about that, what that's going to look like.
0: You mentioned how China can basically win a lot of the tech race by underpricing their equipment. Do you think that the U.S. should be aggressively underpricing our stuff and providing cheap loans or grants or things to, to countries in Africa to make sure that they use our equipment? Or do you think it's just like we need to be banging the drum about China is bad, China is this tech is bad, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think we actually have to be price competitive?
2: I think working with our allies will be essential here. I do not think we should just aggressively drop the prices, though, on our tech. I think we need more R&D investment and human capital. And we need to ensure that our partners know what it means to have this China tech in their networks, what that means, especially if around 2030, China takes the lead on 6G. They can turn off the lights whenever they want to. So I think a mix of that, but also really, we, we, we really have to engage our allies and make sure they. Understand the different types of scenarios that can be a massive disadvantage to them if they decide to go with the cheap option. Because I'll say, I remember years back when we thought China was just, you know, one of the BRICS countries. And but what we saw was on the global stage a Washington model, economic model, and a Beijing economic model. And Beijing came with it, no restrictions. That's what it looked like, no restrictions, no red tape, et cetera. But we look at where Africa is now as a result. So it'll be important for us to emphasize to our allies the short and long-term consequences. Does this align with your national interest to have tech from this place or this place?
1: Shirley, what's an aspect of the China-Taiwan relationship that is not being touched on in the media right now?
2: I wish there was a way for mainstream media to package the topic of the 20th National Party Congress and what these party congresses are for. For this particular one, this is the opportunity for Xi to realize this third term. It is not advantageous to him for there to be chaotic, domestic situations going on. It's not advantageous for there to be a bloodbath on the shores of Taiwan because he decided to invade, militarily invade Taiwan. So I often, I see, and it's concerning to me because I'll even see China specialists say this, which surprises me. I think that we cannot, we can never dismiss how supremely important the National Party Congresses are to China's political calendar. And we also have to think about what the economic disadvantages are for China to just take Taiwan. Xi Jinping is very strategic. You won't just get up and do something. So, of course, we have to be intentional about taking the military threat to Taiwan very seriously, of course. But We can't say that Taiwan is going to be invaded every second. The 20th National Party Congress is happening in the latter part of this year, the second part of this year. And even Taiwan, even Taipei, they know, they've even assessed it as a low possibility. So despite all this talk around Ukraine and Russia, it's not time to say, oh, Xi Jinping is going to swiftly invade Taiwan. It's not time to say that
0: you said that America doesn't fully understand these party congresses. And I can honestly say, I don't understand the China Party Congress. What is it? Is it just like a show, like a big political show? Does anything really substantial actually happen there outside of like, who's the next leader? Like, I sort of, from my perspective, see it as just like, everything gets decided before
2: and it's just like a big pageant. But is that wrong? You know, <laughs> everything is showy in China, <laughs> so I don't think you're uh, entirely off with that. That said, this is where you're going to hear what the policies are regarding Taiwan, what the leadership is going to look like, the Chinese leadership, what that's going to work look like. These National Party Congresses are a way to see the party machine at the national level. And you gain a better perspective of the political transformation planned by the leadership. That That's what these are for. So nothing, nothing chaotic. Xi Jinping wants absolutely nothing chaotic going on, on the way to this sort of event of this magnitude where they are rolling out the direction of political transformation planned by the Politburo. So that's going to be very important here. I think what's so hard, at least from
0: my external perspective, is that it just seems like China's decision-making is a black box, and that it's moving from a communist system, like where the party is in charge, to a really like authoritarian, Xi Jinping is in charge. And do you see that as well, or do you think it's more a... Chinese communism with the Xi Jinping characteristics.
2: I'm concerned about this indefinite term. (laughs) I'm concerned about what that would look like because, you know, with anyone, if you, if you give them the whole landslide of everything, what can they do with it? What will they do with it? So it will be interesting to see what may happen if he is granted this unprecedented third term.
1: Another question on, on China and also sort of a, a cultural issue, I guess, is around TikTok, which, you know, I, I think as we all know, a couple years ago now, uh, there was a, a big sort of national conversation about the national security risks related to TikTok and, you know, what, what it means to have most of Gen Z hooked on a platform owned by ByteDance, a Chinese company. What are your thoughts there on whether there's a national security risk? What exactly is at stake here uh, and so forth?
2: I think a good example is just we're talking about data at that point. How if you're on TikTok, can the PRC force TikTok to share your data? It reminds me a bit of what's been going on against the backdrop of the, the pandemic. where. Chinese telecommunications companies have offices within other state-owned telecoms companies. So, and through that way they're able to say, for example, oh, download this this app. It'll be a way to safely track folks that might have COVID next to you. You can you can tell through this app. But they're downloading your text messages and they're downloading your pictures and government to government Relations may be saying, okay, give us, give us access to your country, your citizens' information. So when it comes to TikTok, I don't have a TikTok. <laughs> I don't have a TikTok. I'm very careful when it comes to which type of apps I download. I think that it's an evolving discussion when it comes to TikTok and sharing data. Because, for example, Facebook will never be like WeChat. WeChat is is massive. If you go to China, everybody has a WeChat. These burner phones that they were talking about during the Olympics, you have a burner phone, but they have this system where, I haven't been to China in a while, but from what my friends are telling me, they're saying, oh, everything's electronic now. You don't pull out cash anymore. <laughs> you can't, not even for a small thing. So What I know a lot of Olympians had to do was pull out their passports and insert information in these tech. So when it comes to TikTok, and especially as this tech age is deepening in every way, I think we just have to be very careful when it comes to tech. And I think it's an evolving discussion about how best to do that. I know under this administration, we are now more focused on cybersecurity threats and we're trying to get American citizens to understand how these threats beyond America impact their everyday lives. And I think until the administration or whatever leadership that we're in is able to push that understanding in such a way that Americans generally understand how that, how you can be susceptible to attacks, depending on the apps that you're using, depending on which websites, it's, it, it's from everywhere. I think when we are able to successfully ensure that the American public understands how cybersecurity threats can come to their front door quite easily, then I think everyone will look at apps very differently.
0: With that, let's turn to our final segment of the show where we talk about something cultural or political that we've been following this week. Zoe, why don't you kick us off?
1: So this past week, I was in Denver attending a conference called ETH Denver, ETH for Ethereum as crypto conference. And everybody was a buzz there over what appeared to be some sort of hack related to OpenSea. OpenSea is a NFT marketplace. I would say it, it seems like the dust is still settling there. A little bit hard to tell what the scale of it is. It seems to have affected at least a dozen people over a million dollars worth of NFTs. But I think we'll probably learn more in the, the coming days and weeks and also a little bit unclear as to where the vulnerability is it seems like it was a phishing attack etc but i think it's interesting because it shows both you know the rapid grow- and growing popularity of of the crypto and nft space and and also the ways in which you know there continue to be vulnerabilities especially as new users get up to speed with what they should expect and what links they should click and not and so forth and i think even those those who are more experienced in the space, um, you know, are realizing that there's probably more steps that everybody can take to be safer.
0: Shirley, what are you following this week?
2: From the Olympics and how, if we go back a little bit, how the IOC was saying that, you know, we're, we're hopeful that there will be no mix of politics with sports. It makes me think of, it reminds me of last year in the UFC in MMA, there was a championship fight. Between Zhang Wei she's from China, and Rose Nama Nunez, and you know you're supposed to build up the fight. You're supposed to hype it, make everybody want to come and watch it. So Rose says something along the lines of, and I and I wouldn't be surprised if she meant it, but she says something along the lines of, you know, um, this is a fight against communism. And I believe her mother. I I, I wish I could remember which country she's from, but. Clearly, a very personal. I think she's first generation American, like I am. Very personal stories. She's heard narratives growing up. And I cringed at that because Zhang Wei Lee never, she never brings up politics ever. And so when I think of IOC, when they're saying, oh, we're trying to separate the politics from the sports, I mean, the World Cup is coming up soon. And I know for sure, my family, (laughs) the football, there's a lot of, Insults happening, and then after the games, we all get along again. So that's what that made me think of. I I was like, I don't, I don't think there's such a thing as 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 separating sports from politics.
0: This week, I just wanted to pause and reflect on the impact of COVID. It's been recently reported that the U.S. passed one million excess deaths during the pandemic. I could take this time to list family members that have passed away since the crisis. The myriad ways our lives have gotten worse, I could rail about getting the vaccine and the end of a mask mandate in D.C. What I really want to talk about is how we can move forward. Following the tragedy of 9-11, we pulled together as a nation, started a brand new cabinet-level department, launched multiple wars, and changed the international landscape. Now, the culture war prevents unity and our government has not started to build new institutions to protect against future pandemics, let alone in the one we're already in. It's far past time for a bipartisan commission to look into how we got into this mess and for legislation and funding to help get us out. I'm hoping it won't take a million more deaths to get there. With that, thanks for joining us. Next in Foreign Policy is produced in cooperation with Foreign Policy for America's Next Gen Initiative. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. You can follow me online at Grant Haver, follow Zoe at ZWeinberg, and follow Shirley at Shirley M. Hargis. If you are a foreign policy professional under 40 and want to be featured on the show, be sure to follow the link in the show notes. This week's episode is brought to you by the handshake deal between Bolsonaro and Vladimir Putin, doubling Russian fertilizer exports to Brazil. Bolsonaro calls it progress. I just think that's a lot of bullshit. Join us in two weeks to hear more about what's next in foreign policy.